One study showed that half of a mushroom, 10 grams, like the size of the tip of your thumb, worth of a white button a day, dropped breast cancer by 64%. They have these chemicals, particularly ergothrionine, which is really anti-cancer, anti-aging. It's very protective. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Santa Clarita, California. Summers Point, New Jersey, and Falmouth, England. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 81 of season 5, number 380 overall. And we are concluding our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series for the year with another extraordinary double episode. Dr. Christy Funk, renowned breast cancer surgeon, she is back with us with a closer look at the four steps you can take today to lower your risk of breast cancer. And much of our conversation today will be focusing on what you eat, the biggest cancer-fighting foods that are out there, and then the foods that you may be eating and have no idea that they are increasing your risk of cancer. So which foods are they? We want to tell you so that you can avoid them. Also in our discussion, cheers to mocktails, my friends. Let's clink a glass to that. Why toasting with alcohol-free drinks can help keep you cancer-free. Going to be discussing that and a whole lot more with Dr. Funk. But we begin today with the story of a breast cancer survivor, our third in this series. Reverend Karen Crisp. She has bravely battled and come out the other side, and she chronicled her journey in this book called Banish Breast Cancer. And her book is all about lifestyle medicine and how that helped her throughout her fight. But there's a big old twist to this story because her husband, Dr. Daryl Crisp, who was by her side the entire time, was reliving a nightmare. Because sadly, Karen's diagnosis was not the first time he had been in the corner of someone fighting breast cancer. But Daryl vowed this time around things would be different. This time, cancer would not win. This time, would not and in heartbreak. But had it not been for Daryl's own health scare, it very well may have turned out to be deja vu all over again. And Karen and Daryl will be joining us from Hawaii with this incredible story, one with a marvelous ending in just 30 seconds. The Barnard Medical Center is powering this episode of the Exam Room Podcast. Their doctors and dietitians practice lifestyle medicine and promote plant-based nutrition with in-person visits in their Washington, D.C. office and telemedicine appointments in 18 states. Visit barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500 to learn more. That's barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500.
Welcome to you both. Thank you so very much for being here. Aloha. Aloha, indeed. Yeah, you guys are in Hawaii. I see the lays right now. It's kind of giving me the tropical vibes. I have a good feeling about this interview. <laughs> All right. We do too. Um, you use the term banish. Karen, I'll start with you. You use the term banish breast cancer in the title of the book here. I mean, that's a pretty strong term, and that is definitely a step above beat. So that really underscores how passionate you are about defeating this beast. Right. Right. Um, I think that part of the um, part of what we want to convey is that there are multiple steps that someone dealing with this can take in addition to conventional therapy through lifestyle choices. And that is kind of a combination, this both and combination that will help optimize any kind of cure. So um, anyway, banish is just, that's, that's what we're trusting is going to come forth from undertaking this effort. I, lo- I love the, the usage though. To me, it conveys strength. It conveys confidence. Um, and it conveys, you know, the fact that you've been there yourself and you are speaking or in this case, uh, writing by experience. So um, let's talk about your journey here. Um, How old were you when you received your breast cancer diagnosis? I was 62. And um, it's interesting, I had just been through the certification process to become certified as a lifestyle medicine professional uh, with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And it was just a few months after that, that I had discovered the lump and started the whole process when I discovered it was breast cancer. So we were already on a clean lifestyle oriented, uh, those habits. And um, so what we discovered was we had to really ramp that up when I found out I had breast cancer. And so um, we kind of, Daryl was my medical Sherlock Holmes in this whole journey. And he was right there by my side doing the deep dive into um, things that we could do in addition to some already healthful choices we were making that were specific to breast cancer. And Daryl, having been a physician yourself, when Karen received this diagnosis, what kind of feelings did that conjure up for you? I mean, this isn't just your wife, but you who's got this medical background, I would assume you you knew exactly what this meant. I did, and I knew we faced a major challenge, and we needed to throw the strongest treatment ever in its direction. And I knew that lifestyle medicine and the whole food plant-based diet and its tenets would serve us well in terms of dealing with this very difficult diagnosis. And what was the specific diagnosis? How far along were you? What, what stage were you when you were diagnosed? You know, they, they didn't do the staging um, quite as intricate as some other places, but it was stage two. Um, it was a invasive ductal carcinoma fairly large. And um, for people who are interested in subtypes, it was triple negative, which is one of the, it's not the worst, but it's one of the worst subtypes that you can have. So um, what Daryl didn't mention when I got my diagnosis is that it's the very same diagnosis his first wife got. um, And she later died 
uh, several years before we met. And so this was kind of a really big double whammy for him. Well, it got my attention. I I bet. I can only imagine the emotions that you were dealing with. Uh, I mean, geez, Louise, you must have felt like the least lucky guy or maybe even cursed. Did you feel cursed, Daryl? No, I thought Karen might feel cursed. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't feel cursed, but I knew that I was into the battle as a caregiver and I would be there full time, hard forward. And he was. And you, you mentioned that you had been studying uh, with ACLM um, prior to this. Um, if you want to call that fate, you want to call that divine intervention, you can give it a name if you want. Um, I, I just, I, I think that that's a little bit more than coincidence. Um, but I'm curious, what piqued your interest in doing that initially? Well, to be honest, it was Daryl. He was studying to become certified as a lifestyle medicine physician through the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. And I was coaching him for months to prep him for the exam when I discovered they had a professional track. And I thought, well, I need to try for that. So we were both on this journey together, but he really is the one who inspired me. He kind of Without going into much detail, he had his own health crisis years before dealing with strokes and some other very difficult um, diagnoses. So he had already been investigating healthful things that he could do when he discovered the lifestyle medicine uh, track. So I have him to thank. Correct. And I was trying to understand better why lifestyle medicine and a plant-based diet really turned my health around because it did. And I knew that I need to understand that better because I'm one of those guys that has to go back to the books and the references. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you're a doctor. How many years did you spend in school? And then you've got continuing education. You're forever learning, my friend. I think that that was ingrained in you in a very young age. I had to have that. That was definitely <laughs> part of it. And he'd practiced for 30 years. So, Yeah. When did the idea of lifestyle medicine first pop on your radar, Daryl? Well, I went to a meeting with the plantrician group. I think it was back in 2015 or 16 and heard some of the speakers that were members of the ACLM. And I've noticed that that came out shortly after. And I thought, man, this is something I really need to do. And sure enough, it turned out to be so valuable. And little did I know that I would have a steady buddy and a partner on this. Well, and he did this in retirement. He became certified in retirement just so he could use it not only for himself and for us, but for friends and family. So um, I have to give him the credit for directing us onto this wonderful path. It was something that was really important to me to be able to share with others. Very important. Let me, let me, here's a curious uh, little departure from uh, the course of the conversation. Just out of curiosity, Daryl, the number of physicians who are practicing in America, only a very, very, very small fraction of them are practicing lifestyle medicine. What do you think is it going to take to make that number grow larger so that people can kind of see like, hey, you know, we don't just have to treat diseases, but there are things that we can do right now that can help really prevent so many of these things. I think patient demand will push it in that direction. And I think as we see more and more certified physicians, one of my uh, colleagues at the place where I practice became a certified physician. 
he brought another person in with him, and now he is actually training residents in internal medicine there, in lifestyle medicine. So it's a growing group that's going to go forward, I think, greatly in the next five to 10 years. You know, I never thought that bandwidth, just sheer bandwidth of patients would be the 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 answer there i mean there's you look at the health trends in this country you see obesity rates chronic uh, disease rates continuing to rise nearly across the board there's only so many doctors which means eventually you're going to have to start cutting something off at the pass and lifestyle medicine as you were just explaining seems to be the way to do it if you look at what happens with the chronic diseases we face in the US all of those are potentially reversible or curable by lifestyle change. And that's the strength of lifestyle medicine. Many people haven't heard of it and the word has to get out, but I think it's going to be very valuable when people know they see the mayor of New York who's had a reversal of his blindness related to diabetes. You see how he reversed his diabetes and you see the changes he's making within the New York infrastructure. Yeah, Eric Adams has been on the show a couple of times. Um, the mayor has, and and I mean, just an incredible story. You know, somebody who's down that far down, nearly out for the count, um, to not just regain uh, his health, but you know, his vision as a whole. I mean, that's just absolutely incredible. Still, though, I'm curious: were you skeptical? When, when I mean, the very first time you heard, like, well, you know, diet can really stop a lot of this stuff and reverse it. I mean, you always hear fruit and vegetables and whole grains. That's all healthy stuff. But did you have any idea just what a powerful tool they could be? I didn't know at the time, but I had been through the last of a series of strokes and was hospitalized. And my neurologist said, you ever heard of a guy named Esselstyn? And I said, who? How do you spell it? And he said, you need to get Dr. Esselstyn's book on reversing heart disease because he could potentially reverse your strokes. I went out that same day, bought the book, and I was a vegan that night. So (laughs) it didn't take long after I got the call that something needed to happen that I was able to do it. How's your health been since that? Wonderful. No further problems. No further problems. And it's helped some other chronic conditions that I've had as well. So tremendous benefit, tremendous benefit. You know, on that same topic, though, we have to really give a shout out to PCRM for what you guys are doing to try to get lifestyle medicine in medical schools so that it's part nutrition and all of this other is part of the training that the young docs are getting. So we really appreciate what PCRM is doing on that front. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, it's it's so important. And, you know, I was I was just thinking about, you know, we, we do such a great job here at the Physicians Committee, but slowly but surely this this message is spreading. I remember uh, watching a segment on the news. My father-in-law actually taped this for me. He was like, you have to watch this. This is right up your alley. And it had to do with a group of doctors, I believe, in Philadelphia who were actually writing prescriptions for produce. Instead of giving them typical medication, they were like, hey, try eating, you know, these vegetables first. And um, they had worked it out where, you know, essentially it was a $10 coupon, as a matter of fact, to go to a store and get $10 worth of produce um, that they had been prescribed. And the results that they're seeing preliminarily uh, have just been absolutely incredible. That's amazing. Traumatic change for medicine to write prescriptions for food. Amazing. 
Amazing. <laughs> what a concept. Yeah. Um, Karen, I want to get back to your story here. Um, prior to your diagnosis, we hear a lot about, um, you know, there being family history when it comes to breast cancer or other risk factors. Which risk factors were you aware of that you had? I wasn't aware of any. Uh, I did have uh, my paternal grandmother develop breast cancer when she was elderly and it later metastasized to her brain. So that was, she was probably in her late eighties when she died, but um, come to find out genetics really only is a, is a factor in about 5%. It's a very small percentage. It's almost always some kind of a lifestyle factor or multiple lifestyle factors. And um, to be honest, I kind of blame myself for not having had a mammogram in about a decade prior to discovering the lump. I had very arrogantly decided that it was just too much radiation and I was just going to quit doing it. I'd had a few false alarms. And so I just decided not to do that. And I think I paid the price for waiting, you know, so long because by the time they discovered it, it was fairly large. And um, even though chemotherapy helped to reduce the size, it wasn't enough to prevent a mastectomy. So um, I think women paying attention, and particularly as you get older, paying attention to any changes. I had some outward signs that there might be a problem, but I attributed it to the fact that I'd never had children and I was getting older. So I self-diagnosed myself as it's just what happens when you get older. Well, that wasn't the case. So um, that plus in, you know, my youth and ignorance early on, I had consumed a lot of dairy and cheese and just had not had the best um, nutritional profile that I had come to discover later. So I think it was cumulative. I mean, you can sit here and beat yourself up all day for the things that you used to eat. Um, you can call it ignorance. I, to me, that's like a, a negative word. Like you just didn't know. So, I mean, how technically ignorant is that? Um, I guess that's the definition of it. But bottom line, don't beat yourself up, you know, right. is what I'm saying. You or anyone else, you know, right. you, you're learning along the way. And boy, have you ever learned a lot, you know. Right. Even when we went through the lifestyle medicine training and all, I had learned that alcohol is a known hu human carcinogen, and particularly for different types of cancers, breast cancer being one of them. This is prior to my diagnosis. But I was in the camp that instead of completely eliminating alcohol, I reduced. I used to really enjoy having a glass of wine or sometimes two, most evenings is just a way to chill. And um, so even though I knew that intellectually at the time prior to the diagnosis, I didn't really feel like it was that big of a deal. But the day I learned that I most likely had um, malignant cancer, I told Daryl on a way home from the, from the uh, biopsy and all, I said, I'm quitting alcohol today. And so I haven't had any since then. And so that's one thing that anyone who wants to prevent or reduce the likelihood of recurrence or whatever needs to seriously think about significantly reducing, if not eliminating alcohol. 
had you had any other health challenges prior to this? I ask because I've spoken with two other uh, thrivers this year as part of the Let's Beat Breast Cancer series, both of whom uh, had had significant health struggles uh, earlier in their lives. One had overcome PCOS. The other had thyroid cancer. Had you battled anything else prior to your breast cancer diagnosis? In terms of cancer, only one situation in my teenage years, I had a very unusual form of, it's actually considered a type of skin cancer, dermafibrosarcoma protuberans or whatever for anybody who might be interested. But anyway, that required some surgery and they got clear margins and I have had no recurrence or anything like that. So that was kind of a little scare in my teenage years. And then later as a young adult, I developed an adult onset seizure disorder. And it took a number of years to get the right combination of meds. And that's been well controlled uh, since then. But um, other than that, I've really not had significant health issues at all. Um, This is a question for you both. Um, Prior to, uh, Daryl, you reading uh, Esselstyn's book, um, what was your diet looking like at that time? Was it the standard American diet? I was a Texas beef eater. <laughs> Barely a weekend went by without a big barbecue. So I was not on the right trail. Not on the right trail. Was that the same for you? Were you all about the uh, the Texas barbecue? No, I was actually a vegetarian um, and had been for quite a while. But that all, that included things like I thought I was doing good to drink raw uh, goat's milk, for instance, or uh, cheeses and eggs and things like that, that, you know, of course, are not on a whole food plant-based diet. So I was vegetarian, <clears throat> but, um, you know, I had, had not really had meat or poultry or anything like that for years. So it's probably an easier transition from vegetarian to vegan than standard American diet, full bore to vegan. So Daryl probably had a tougher road to hoe, but... Um, well, the thing that helped me is growing up, my dad was a medical student at Lumberland University, and when we were out there, I learned to like vegetables. Thank goodness. We were out there till I was about seven and moved back to Texas when I became a beef person at that point. But at least I knew and I could enjoy vegetables, so that was helpful. Loma Linda of all the places. I mean, that's the spot right there, isn't it? For it the, is. You know, is. if anybody's not familiar, Loma Linda, one of the uh, the Blue Zones, longevity just runs rampant there. Um, some of the longest living people uh, on the face of the earth, according to Dan Butner's research. Loma Linda, that's, that's the epicenter. Um, so let me ask you this. I want to go back to, Karen, something that you said a little bit earlier, and that was your stubbornness to... Um, get the mammogram. You went about a decade. You were worried about the radiation. Yet, after the diagnosis, you very much opted for not just putting into practice everything that you had learned about lifestyle medicine, but also utilizing conventional medicine. I think that that is something that a lot of people who might be listening to the show right now kind of wrestle with. Can you walk us through your decision, how you arrived at why it was you wanted to do that? Well, um, this is where Daryl helping me do the deep dive into pathology reports and talking to my oncologist. Um, The fact that I had gone so long and it had by that time grown so much 
and it being a one of the worst subtypes meant that I needed to treat it aggressively. And uh, we did do a lot of querying with the doc and ask a lot of questions. Um, but there were even some minor things in the pathology that like, for instance, there's something called a KI67 antigen. And I learned that that means it will, whatever that number is, it's usually between zero and a hundred, will show you how either lazy the cancer is or how aggressive the cancer is. Well, mine was kind of right in the middle. And so if it had come out to be a lazier cancer, um, I might've made some different choices, but since it was kind of borderline middle there, I was, plus it was a difficult to treat, uh, difficult, more difficult cancer. I just felt like I needed to do the both and approach rather than the either or. So um, it was difficult. I mean, I promise you, I would never have undergone that if I hadn't, I mean, my doc ran, what do they call those? Um, survival tables. Survival tables or whatever. If you don't do any chemo or if you do, or if you do this chemo versus that chemo. And I have all this paperwork that shows the projected survival rates with or without and all of that. So I think that all helped me decide. Plus I did have a lot of faith in my doctor, even though he was not lifestyle oriented. He also was very, we told him everything we were doing on the lifestyle front in addition to that. And he was very supportive so um, I, I, I don't know that that really answers your question, but I think in my case, the type of cancer and the aggressiveness of it helped make the decision. So if somebody has a less aggressive or they have a, uh, a different sub-profile in their pathology report, where say a, just a lumpectomy, no chemo, no radiation, something like that, I think that can all factor into it. There's so many different kinds of breast cancer that I don't think what my decisions were would necessarily make it right for somebody else. I think it has to be done individually. And Daryl, uh, I need you to put your uh, physician's code on here uh, and answer me this one. Um, asking for the doctors who might be listening right now, how does one balance the idea of conventional medicine mixed with lifestyle medicine versus the group of individuals who might want to put 100% of their faith in diet and lifestyle. As a physician, where do you see that balance? Well, I think there's a balance there based on evidence. And if you have evidence that conventional medicine is effective, combined with evidence of lifestyle factors that may be beneficial that's where physicians are going to find most believability. I really think that physicians rely, in many cases, exclusively on conventional medicine. But I think eyes are opening that there are more points of therapy than what we really thought were possible. And let's talk about, uh, Karen, let's talk about that blend of um, treatment here that, that you went through here. So you're putting into practice everything that you had learned um, in terms of lifestyle medicine, but what were the conventional treatments that you underwent? And um, to piggyback on that, just to, you know, commit the journalism sin here, but to do double questions here, how do you think that 
helped your outcome and helped guide you through or get you through uh, what can be, you know, awfully horrific side effects for a lot of people. Right. Um, I did, I did five months of chemotherapy, uh, two different rounds. The first couple of months and a half, I did a very difficult, um, they called it the red devil because the chemo's literally red in color and has very horrific side effects, at least for me. Um, and then I switched the last half to a kinder, gentler, quote unquote, chemotherapy for the last 12 weeks. Um, so that was that was pretty brutal. I had a lot of side effects. I talk about that in the book and I give people who might be undergoing the same kind of chemo, some ideas of things they can do to help mitigate some of the side effects. But after that, um, they did scans and discovered that it had reduced the tumor to roughly half the size, which was fairly impressive given my circumstances. But um, it wasn't enough to prevent a mastectomy. So I underwent the mastectomy. And at the same time, a plastic surgeon implanted a um, tissue expander for future um, so that in the future I could have that expanded to have it swapped out and replaced for a, um, what is the word I'm looking for, honey? Oh, <laughs> uh, for the, uh, for the implant. The implant? Yeah. yeah. The yeah. implant. Cause I chose to have an implant. So I did the mastectomy. And then after the mastectomy, the pathology reports came back showing some skin involvement in that area. So I had to, go on an oral chemo drug for a few months. And then after we stopped that, I did six weeks of radiation. So I kind of made up for those 10 years plus of not having mammograms by doing the radiation. Um, So that was, it took probably about a year roughly. And um, to do all of that treatment and then later, after I recovered from radiation, I had the day surgery to do the uh, swap out of the tissue expander for the implant. But um, I forget the second question. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think um, you, you would have, um, the side effects would have been had you not been also utilizing lifestyle medicine? Do you uh, think that they would have been even worse? Do you think that it helped kind of mitigate the severity of the side effects? Yes. And even my oncologist would attest to this. He was amazed at how well and my resilience and stamina, although I did have some pretty low dips along the way, but overall my stamina and my resilience and bouncing back from the treatments and all was very much outside the norm. And in fact, he was so impressed that at one point when I had an office visit, he had another patient in another room who had just been given a diagnosis and was very afraid of chemo. And he asked if I would go talk to her and let her know, you know, for her to see me as someone who was already undergoing it and to see how well I was doing and to um, just let her know that, you know, what my experience was. So I do think it helped with stamina and resilience as much as anything. I think your recovery time and the recovery tremendously times. shortened post-operatively and post-chemo and every other way. I can tell that difference compared to how my first wife <laughs> did me. throughout the treatment that she had. It really was very debilitating. 
much less so in your case, I think. Yeah, I went home from the hospital the next day after the mastectomy. I mean, the same day as the mastectomy, I was up walking the halls. And uh, anyway, so yeah, I think even even the doctors were were kind of surprised at how well I was doing. I, I asked for plant based meals in the hospital. Um, you know, they, it's not a hospital system that's really known for that. But anyway, I asked for plant based meals post surgery. Were they able to accommodate? Well, the best they could, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Given a limited choice range. Gotcha. I gotcha. And and Daryl, I mean, this must have, to hear that, um, this must have really um, given you a lot of confidence about the direction that Karen was headed in. I mean, one, you just mentioned what you had been through previously, but two, again, being a doctor yourself, being able to interpret those results um, and, you know, not have to wait for somebody else to interpret them for you. You know exactly, again, what's going on. Um, this must have been... Uh, you know, I don't want to say a relief for you, given everything that was going on at the time, but at least giving you, you know, like you can definitely see light at the end of the tunnel. Definitely. It was very reassuring. Now, I was predominantly a pediatric physician when I was practicing, but I did remember all of the things that I had seen in adult medicine. And I don't remember the recuperative abilities like we saw in this situation. This was amazing. So. When um, did you, Karen, get the the word that uh, basically all clear at this point? I think you need to be five years out in order to be considered fully in remission. But when did you get the all clear diagnosis? Well, you know, I don't know that you ever truly get that. You're um, usually a post post treatment plan involves seeing the oncologist every three months for the first few years. And then you go to every six months and then every year for the rest of your life. So um, I think every breast cancer patient always has in the back of their mind the potential of recurrence. And so, um, you know, I don't know that I ever got the quote unquote all clear, but it was nice to be able to see those milestones of going from three months to six months to annual and kind of thing like that. So I do think though the point to emphasize is that Anyone dealing with breast cancer and in the back of their mind thinking of recurrence, knowing that whatever you're doing to either try to prevent breast cancer to begin with or to help treat it while you have it, those same steps will help keep recurrence at bay uh, as as much as possible. Um, I think that's true. And I think I've started looking a little bit more since we have a, a support group that we have. I wanted to re- look more at remissions in people who had breast cancer. And there now are a couple of good studies out that looked at remissions and found that the same things, including a whole food plant-based diet, the other things that we've done in terms of lifestyle medicine, make a possibility of spontaneous or good remission possible. So I think that's something that's important. You know, another thing that we haven't mentioned, but was real important, I think, throughout this whole process is movement. I hate to use the word exercise because that has a negative connotation to me, but just movement. And I think trying to keep moving throughout this entire journey was important. There were some days I felt like I was moving like a turtle, Um, but still getting out and trying to move most days, um, I think is another key key aspect of this, stress reduction, uh, good sleep habits, 
positive emotions, a spiritual underpinning, all of these things kind of work synergistically. And um, the positive emotion thing is probably the most important and the most difficult because you don't typically think of positive emotions in the same sentence with breast cancer. But uh, I, I need to really put in a plug for trying to keep the most positive attitude possible. Do you think your outcome would have been the same had you not had your faith? That's an area that we haven't really discussed yet. Your faith and that positive mental attitude? I think it would have been a lot different. It's so easy to succumb to negative thinking. And I do believe strongly in a mind-body connection. And I think that negative thinking can impact your physical body negatively. And so... um, I write about this in the book about finding your happy, whatever your happy zone or place or thing is to find that and cling to it. And um, so, yes, I think that enhanced all of what we were talking about above, but particularly the resilience and the, um, the stamina and the ability to just not succumb to the dire thinking I think you really have to practice being happy, too. Sometimes you you have to stay away from a crummy news. You need to watch some comedies. You need to get some laughter in your life. Very, very important. Norman Cousins found that out with his illness, that if he watched those Marx Brothers movies or the Candid Camera or things like that, that smile and laughter really helped his recovery. I think uh, I've seen people say, or I've heard people say that, you know, if you force yourself to smile after not very long, maybe 30 seconds, a minute, something like that, even if you're having the crummiest of day, for whatever reason, you'll start to feel better. It just releases some sort of emotion. It, it kind of tricks the brain into being happy. So just mm, force it on yourself, uh, yes. even at your lowest point. It's true. By practicing it, you're actually releasing hormones that are positive. You're doing things that improve your immune system. So people don't recognize this, but it is something that the happiness factor can be a very, very, very big factor in how you do. So you go through all of that, and then the two of you decide, we want to write this book, Banish Breast Cancer. And it it really does. It walks people through your journey. Um, But you use like some fantastic... um, I guess analogies in there. I mean, one of the things you you write about was uh, feeling like you were snow deep in Antarctica, uh, which I thought was a a really poignant way of of putting where you were at the time. Um, You also have one of my favorite, I mean, one of my favorite people of all time is Yogi Berra, phenomenal uh, baseball manager, Hall of Famer. And he is known for these sayings that are just Household sayings, even if you don't know where they came from, like um, it's getting late early was a Yogi Berra-ism. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. That was another thing that Yogi would say. Uh, the future ain't what it used to be. I mean, th- like that's just classic, you know, and uh, w- w- what's another one? You've got to be very careful if you don't know where you're going because you might not get there. But the one that you write about really being impactful in the book is it's like deja vu all over again. And for where you were at that particular point in your journey, where you use that in the book, I thought that that was so fitting. Um, Are you baseball fans? Is Yogi Berra somebody that you guys look up to as well? He is. Well, not so much. 
I'm more of a baseball fan, but I don't know. It just, it, it, his saying just kept coming to me. So I just decided to use it, but. It's one that gets attention. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Antarctica analogy. I, 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 you know, we love Hawaii. And so Hawaii is our happy place and the warmth and the healing energy of Hawaii is very much what I associate with happiness and good times and all of that. Antarctica is just the opposite of that. So to me, cancer and Antarctica were synonymous. You know, I just can't think of a more, I mean, some people may love it, but I couldn't think of a worse place to ever, I will never go there (laughs) physically. I enjoy doing wildlife photography and would love to go photograph the polar bears, but she ain't going. Not going with them. (laughs) So, and there's a little story at the beginning of the book that kind of talks about that analogy. But the other thing is, I use several analogies, and one is that cancer can really be a teacher. If you pay attention to what cancer may be trying to teach you, and that's a tougher assignment, if you will, but, you know, we kind of felt like we had to go to cancer school to learn about cancer. But also when I would do meditation or contemplative work, some inner work, I was looking at what is this cancer? Why did it show up in my life? What is it that it's trying to teach me? And I was pretty amazed at several things that came up uh, when I did that inner work. And three things in particular came up that I needed to release and let go of. And I think that was part of the healing. Yeah, it goes back to kind of that that positive, you know, mental attitude and how important that can be uh, for your journey and uh, really recovery from a myriad of challenges that life may throw your way. Um, I, I wish that we had more time. I feel like there's a lot more that we could get into. Um, I definitely like y'all's style tremendously, right down to the Hawaiian shirt and, and the lays that you're wearing. Um, the fact that you're in Hawaii, I think is fantastic. Daryl, I don't know if you're going to get me to go to Antarctica with you either, to be perfectly honest. Um, but, you know, Godspeed, my friend. If you find somebody to go, send me the photos. I'll be happy to, you know, put them up on Instagram or something. Will do. Uh, but one place uh, you are going is the uh, ACLM conference in Florida in November. Uh, will you be speaking there? What's going on? No, no. Um, we'll be attending the conference and then the bookstore as my understanding is going to be featuring our book. Um, and I think there may be a book signing. I'm not for sure about that, but no, we'll be attending the American college of lifestyle medicine conference in mid November in Orlando. I find it less than coincidental. You're going from one warm environment to another, <laughs> definitely not Antarctica. That's true. All right. The That's- book is banish breast cancer. Uh, you two are absolutely just the best. Uh, Karen, congratulations on your recovery. And thank you for sharing your story so bravely uh, with the entire world. There's a link to pick up your copy of the book right now in the show description or in the episode notes. So go ahead and do that and uh, raise your health IQ. Karen and Daryl Crisp, thank you both so very much for being here. You know, I'm still struck by that story. I mean, what are the odds of fate intervening and them becoming certified in lifestyle medicine just before everything began for Karen? I mean, what are the odds? And it's just incredible to me how much it helped both of them. 
And you know, Karen's success, it really does echo what we've heard from our other Thrivers this month. Allison Tierney and Deandra Fields, both of whom spoke so highly of how their healthy lifestyle and healthy diet helped them thrive throughout what is an ultra-taxing course of treatment. And by the way, I am so excited to share this great update about Deandra with you because she completed her radiation treatments last week and she posted a picture of her ringing the bell in her doctor's office celebrating that incredible milestone. And she wrapped everything up with a big old smile on her face. I love that photo. You have to see it. Check it out on Twitter. Her account is at science underscore couple. Check out the photo, like it, send your congratulations and well wishes. I'm sure that she would love to hear from you. Now, if you happen to be in the Washington, D.C. area, we are up to something really kind of cool. Join us in front of the White House on Thursday, October 27th at 1 p.m. for a rally featuring a whole bunch of drum lines. We are beating breast cancer. We've got drummers from the Eastern High School Drum Corps who are coming. We've got the Irish drummers who will be there doing their thing and a whole bunch of others as well. All of them will be beating the drum to beat cancer. And our goal that day is simple. We want to send a clear and convincing message that eating a plant-based diet can be a powerful tool to prevent breast cancer. And what better place to send that message than that historic residence at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So join me on Thursday, October 27th at 1 p.m. for a banging good time as we send a message to the president we say, Mr. President, approximately 42,000 women, 500 men, they will die in the United States from breast cancer this year. And Mr. President, it does not have to be that way. Let's shift gears now because it is time to wrap up our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series for this year. And for that, we turn once again to Dr. Christy Funk. She is back for the final installment of our three-part series designed to give you all the tools and all the knowledge that you need to build the best shield possible for cancer, both in terms of preventing it and helping you in the fight if you have been diagnosed with it. These are four steps you can take this very second that can make all the difference in the world. Dr. Christy Funk, you ready to talk about the four prongs? I'm ready to rock it. I'm ready to fork it. Okay, so before <laughs> we get into, I got to tell you guys, let's be breastcancer.org obsessed this year is so much more fun than any prior year we've got a ton of giveaways you get a free uh e-cookbook when you join and then i'm doing lives on zoom and instagram and facebook and youtube every thursday with different things going on it's super fun but the best part about it all the shirts this year you too can own eat plants crush cancer this shirt <laughs> the long sleeve it's so cozy pcrm always picks the best companies to work with for their stuff but wait, there's more. 
now we have tank tops. I'm so excited. I'm literally obsessed with these shirts. So let's be breastcancer.org and go there to buy your shirt. Support the cause. Oh, you go to PCRM LBBC campaign. You have Amazon live stream written all over you. You've got QVC written all over you. You've actually got let's be breastcancer.org written all over you. All over. Yep. I'm going to put my long sleeve back on though. You are a heck of a salesperson, um, except you're not like selling snake oil you're selling health so i'm all in for this yeah and really cool shirts i mean seriously look at the look at the hot pink on the black i was telling you that before we started rolling tape like how great that looks that's fantastic can i brag in a meeting i made that up no cancer Mm -hmm. well done thanks well done creative smart total package that's why i'm glad you're here dr funk all right Shall we rock on, Glamour Boy? <laughs> I'm not I'm not glammed out today. You're the one with four shirts. All right, let's <laughs> do this thing. Uh, let's talk about the four-pronged approach. Uh, as good as ever, I know that we visited some of this information already in the first two shows, but let's really hyper-focus in on it. Which of the four prongs would you like to start with? Oh, eating the whole food plant-based diet. Okay, I think that's a great place to start. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> When you think about the biggest things that you can change in your life that have a dramatic evidence-based effect on your risk for getting cancer or not, which turns out to also be the same stuff that impacts your risk for getting all the things that make life worse. Um, So it's not just things that kill you, but it is true. Heart disease, stroke, diabetes, Alzheimer's, obesity, all of that, which can kill you, is dramatically decreased in incidence by espousing the four-pronged approach to beating breast cancer. But you know what else it does? It just makes everything else better. It may not have killed you, but your depression and anxiety or joint pain or irritable bowel or just flat out your acne causing a bad day usually disappears, but always improves. So these boulders, I liken it to a scale, right? So you're putting some boulders on the scale of your life through diet and nutrition if you're eating animals instead of plants. If you're drinking excessive alcohol rather than less or none. If you're sedentary versus exercising. If you're overweight or obese versus being ideal body weight. Those are boulders on your scale. And in my heavily researched opinion, if you have a boulder, there are pebbles that can tip a scale if you're otherwise doing really well. But if you've got a boulder, dropping another pebble, some grains of sand, not going to make a change. So what I'm talking about there are things like hormone replacement therapy, environmental toxicities, right? We live in a ubiquitous barrage of chemicals, 99% of which we don't even know their names or their effects because they're not studied by the EPA. Um, Others we do know about like the BPA in plastics or the phthalates in cosmetics or the formaldehyde coming off your couch, right? And to the degree that you can examine your medicine or your, sure, look at your medicine cabinet, but what I meant to say was your laundry uh, area where you've got detergents and soaps. We look at your bathroom. That's where I was thinking with the medicine cabinet at your lotions, your toothpaste, your cosmetics, And to the degree that you can make it uh, always cruelty-free choice, of course, for the animals, but just uh, without all of the additives, anything with a perfume is going to is going to have um, an endocrine disruptor in it. And when I say endocrine, it could be something other than estrogen, which le- leads itself to increasing breast cancer risk. It can be other 
endocrine organ. So it can act like thyroid hormone, parathyroid hormone, it can act like cortisol and adrenal gland hormones. Um, there are a whole host of environmental toxicities, but they're outdone by a bad diet, being overweight, not exercising and drinking too much alcohol. So in the third pebble, which is not insignificant just to your overall life, but in terms of making an environment conducive to cancer is emotional stress. That connection is definitely found in the literature, but it's not consistent with breast cancer enough for me to say that there's a direct connection, but it's obvious to me, you increase C-reactive protein, interleukins, decrease natural killer cells. There's a cellular environment that gets altered by the chronicity of stress and by acute stress that absolutely can open a window of opportunity for a cancer cell to exist and thrive. However, the things that you that can come after those cells daily and that have the biggest impact are these boulders. So let's jump into them. We're going to start with diet and nutrition. If you missed our first episode together, Chuck and I did a nice deep dive on, onto the landscape of why animal protein and animal fat is so detrimental to that cell environment and conducive to creating cancer and increasing cancer mortality. So definitely have a look. Now we're getting into the fun stuff. Now we're getting into the eat this, be happy. Okay. So this study is hot off the press. Look at this, June 2022. Adherence to a healthy and unhealthy plant-based diets and risk of breast cancer overall. Uh, and then they looked at it by estrogen status and types of cancer, breast cancer subtypes. Anyway, this study is cool. You know why? Because it highlights that unhealthy plant-based eating is actually unhealthy. This followed over 65,000 women for 21 years on average, and they found a 20% increase in breast cancer in those who ate plant-based, but in an unhealthy way. So we're talking high fat, highly processed, highly refined, high sugar added types of foods are not good for you. It's still better than a full carnivorous, uh, you know, non-plant-based diet, but I want you to choose whole foods, and hence the word whole is in all capitals, and I'm going to give you a massive list of 18 whole foods that you can be consuming that are going to decrease your risk of breast cancer. Check out last year, yes, 2021, Chuck and I did an even deeper dive into these 18 foods. Today, I'm going to just highlight them so they're on at top of mind. You're like, oh yeah, I forgot that she's always talking about that flaxseed. I'm going to start having it again. All right, so the first breast superfood is soy. This I am going to belabor a little bit because it just gets such a bad rap, and it seems that people just refuse to accept that it's a superfood. Okay, so what's happening? Turns out there are two estrogen receptors in our body. People seem to know uh, that soy is a phytoestrogen, a plant-based estrogen, genistein, dadezine, and Therefore, they think, well, I know that estrogen feeds and fuels cancer. And in case you don't, it does. 80% of all breast cancers are fueled through receptors on the cancer cell for estrogen. Estrogen hits it, tells the cancer cell to multiply and divide. And so we use estrogen blockers in women with cancer to help stave off a recurrence. All right, so let's get into the soy estrogen then. Isn't it doing the same thing? Oh my gosh, you guys, for 18 years as a breast cancer surgeon, I was telling people like, spit that miso out of your mouth. How much do you love soy? Stop it with the soy soys. Just switch, almond, whatever. Just stop with the soy. 
18 years. So when I was writing my book, Breast the Owner's Manual, I dove into the soy science to pull out the science to prove why you should not have it. And I was like, whoopsies, something <laughs> wrong. So sorry about that, everybody that doesn't see me anymore. Hope you watch this and start having some tofu because soy, in fact, is not only like okay to have, you should have it. It's protective against getting breast cancer and having it recur. And I'm gonna show you the stats that back that up. But there's been no human study in women and breast cancer ever done looking at soy that shows it to increase anything, incidence, recurrence, mortality from breast cancer. It's just a full on superfood. The reason is, as I started to say, there's two receptors in our bodies for estrogen, alpha and beta. Alpha's on the cancer cell. So it turns out with 1600% more affinity, the estrogen compounds in soy hits beta. And when it's there, it does some amazing helpful things. Number one, it shuts alpha down. So it's like getting rid of the estrogen receptor. Number two, it goes out into your fat cells where you have an enzyme. Follow me through this because it's going to be a theme today, aromatase. It's an enzyme. It sits in your fat cells and it converts precursor steroids coming from your adrenal gland like testosterone and androstenedione, and it turns some of all that into estrogen, okay? So fat cells have this enzyme that soy rushes out and shuts off. So now you're turning off your aromatase enzyme and you have less estrogen. But wait, okay, fine, it hits this receptor, but doesn't it sometimes hit the alpha receptor? Uh, yes, it does, and it's like, it's almost like tamoxifen, which is a estrogen lookalike that drugs we give people to block their receptor. So it sits there and it has one tenth to one hundredth of the signaling capacity that pure estrogen does. So it's like divide, divide. It's like super wimpy. It's more of a blocker than it is a promoter. So let me give you some of the fast facts on soy to just prove my point with science instead of you believing me. So these studies show that, yes, in fact, high versus low consumption of soy does lead to less breast cancer incidence. So this is getting it in the first place. Huge study in Chinese women, because they have more soy over there and get better studies, uh, had a almost 60% drop in premenopausal breast cancer for high versus low soy consumers. Moving over to America, but keeping it Asian, uh, we've got childhood intake of just, get this, one and a half servings of soy a week. So we're not even talking high, but that versus basically no soy led to 58% less adult onset breast cancer. And I love this factoid, Korean BRCA carriers. So BRCA gene mutations usually, BRCA1, 75% of the cancers are the opposite. They're estrogen negative. They could care less about estrogen. And yet high soy consumption dropped their cancers by 43%, pointing towards the idea that there are compounds in soy that go far beyond this estrogen blocking business that I just detailed out. And there are anti-carcinogenic properties, anti-angiogenic properties, anti-inflammatory properties of soy that decrease cancer risk. All right, so let's just say you have breast cancer and it's estrogen driven. Now should I be nervous about taking soy? We weren't so sure until the study started pouring out. This is one of my faves. It's relatively recent, 2020. It's a fave for two reasons. It's large volume and it's American, and it has almost a third of the patient study being black. African-Americans are often underrepresented in our dietary studies, and so this is a beauty. We got over 52,000 North American women. They're followed almost eight years, and in that time, 
just over a thousand new breast cancer cases developed. And then they looked at milk consumption, cow milk and soy milk. And if you just take your average number of cups a day for either one, so it's the average soy milk consumption versus average cow milk consumption, you find 32% less breast cancer occurring in those who have your average soy milk consumption. I'm sorry, these are not cancer agents. This is still an incident study. Then we move on to cancer. And interestingly, when you compare just among milk drinkers, the most milk drunk versus the least, so 90th to 10th percentiles, there's a 50% increase in breast cancer. So there's a real good uh, dairy stat for people who are like, is dairy okay? Mm, no. All right, now we're moving into the cancer patients. This is a multi-ethnic survivor study. These women are all in tamoxifen, and yet high versus low soy consumption still dropped cancer by 60%. This is interesting now, because wait, wouldn't you say like, well, maybe it's all the tamoxifen, you just said it's an estrogen blocker. No, because look at this other study, 6,200 multi-ethnic survivors, they're followed nine plus years. They have high versus low soy consumption, leads to 21% less all-cause death, but 32% mortality drop in people without tamoxifen. So they have estrogen positive cancers. That's what ER means, estrogen receptor. So they could have been on tamoxifen, but they weren't, and they still had a 32% drop. So maybe it's additive right? Tamoxifen alone. We know from studies, though, it generally drops cancer recurrence by about 50%, but it only drops mortality by about 30%. So this is a mortality drop, not an incidence drop, right? So it's definitely additive. Soy plus tamoxifen is better than either alone. Now, you also find a decreased mortality in the estrogen negative group. Again, like I was saying with the BRCA carriers in those cancers. So there's a lot more than genistein going on. More soy affecting breast cancer recurrence and mortality studies, 5,000 patients, 32% less recurrence, 29% less deaths, almost 10,000 breast cancer patients, a wimpy half a cup of soy a day. Come on, people. I want two to three servings. Still 25% less recurrence. And then finally, just for some of the people who are still concerned out there, Dr. Messina published this butte of a study because it is the largest of its kind um, in 2021. He looked at every single human study and soy and disease. So it was more than breast cancer. And he just like got into the weeds with it and his whole research team to be like, come on, once and for all, what's the deal with soy? And they concluded that the isoflavones, again, the plant-based estrogen things, genistein and soy are not endocrine disruptors. So it's more than just the whole breast cancer thing. There's no adverse alteration in thyroid function, estrogen levels, ovulation in women, semen levels in men, and there are no negative effects in children. And that is a um, just banal way of actually putting to rest that whole gynecomastia thing. So the man boobs or the child boobs, there are one-offs. You can do a Google search and you'll probably find that 19 year old kid who was literally drinking a gallon of soy milk a day. And so he got a little breast proliferation. Like that's a ridiculous amount of soy milk kid. So stop drinking it and your little breasts will go away. But honestly, so that's it. Soy it up people. Next superfood, cruciferous vegetables, leafy greens. We've got broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, turnips, watercress, kale, arugula, collards, right? That whole family, bok choy, Swiss chard. Sulforaphane is the king here. So sulforaphane is 
a particular isothiocyanate, a particular plant-based chemical that has the power to seek out and destroy cancer cells. And I'm super obsessed with cancer stem cells. So stem cells are these little masterminds that they can become anything you need them to be in your body when they work well, when they're healthy. But what if they get hijacked by cancer? Ooh, now all of a sudden you've got like Dr. Evil going on. You have this pluripotent stem cell that can do anything. And the only thing now this hijack cell wants to do is be cancer and double itself and double itself and double itself and like be a cancer recurrence. Here's the thing about stem cells though. They divide really slowly, really slowly. And you may or may not know that chemo is not smart. It's not aimed at any targets. Um, it's just there to nuke anything that moves fast. So your cancer moves fast. So that's why it decreases mortality from cancer. But guess what else moves fast? Your hair follicles, so bald. Your GI tract, so blah, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Your fingernails, so you clip them every week, right? They get like brittle and wonky. Your nerve impulses, really fast. So neuropathy, numbness and tingling in your fingers and toes, sometimes permanent from chemo. So chemo is just who moved fast? Who's moving fast? And stem cells don't. So they lie in wait, they escape the weaponry. And that's why five years, 10 years, or 20 years, we sadly just lost Olivia Newton-John who had a recurrence 20 years after her cancer. Why? This cancer stem cell. So check this out. Broccoli sprouts have a hundred times the sulforaphane content of broccoli. So there was this study, we talked about it in the live Q and A and I'm, I'm just, I'm so obsessed with it that I want you to know about it in case you missed the Q&A. Um, so, uh, so the broccoli sprouts, there was a study, they took both human breast cancer, estrogen driven and estrogen negative cancers and grafted them. I know, I'm sorry, they grafted them on mice. And then they injected the mice abdomens with sulforaphane. And over a three week period, you, they literally saw the breast cancer grafting of stem cells, right? The masterminds of recurrence go going, 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 gone. And the amazing part is, cutting to the chase, the amount of sulforaphane that you had to consume as a human to equate with what the mice were getting would be the equivalent of one and a quarter cups of broccoli sprouts a day. So while that's a kind of a huge handful, if I had breast cancer, I would be chomping that stuff down. It'd be in every salad, every little vegan sandwich on whole grain bread, any uh, smoothie that I was making, I would get that cup and quarter a day. And I would probably save my pennies and have a lot of jars of broccoli sprouts all over my kitchen. Sprouting <laughs> at home. It's easy to do. It's five days from seed to sprout, people. All right. And one quick tip that I won't belabor, but just throw it out there. You destroy the enzyme that makes sulforaphane by heat and cooking. So either eat it raw or lightly steamed, or if you roast it, add back some of the raw cruciferous, any of those veggies. So you're throwing your myrosinase back into the mix so you can get all the bang out of your brock that you can. Superfood number three is flax seeds. Flax seeds are the little... Um, they, they have the highest content of lignans of any food on planet Earth, like 800 times in some studies. And you care about lignans because they're another form of phytoestrogens, plant-based estrogens that do the blocking thing, just like we ran through with soy. 
they exhibit all kinds of anti-breast cancer virtues directly relating to lowering estrogen, like I said, but also they slow down abnormal cell growth and they increase something called endostatin in your bloodstream. Endostatin inhibits tumor angiogenesis. Angio blood vessel genesis birth, the birth of new blood flow to a cancer cell is required for it to exist and grow and proliferate. And then once it gets big enough, like wherever it is in your breast, guess what? Angiogen the blood vessels. Oh, let me just hop on in there. Boom. Off I go. Long liver, bone, brain. Endostatin from flax inhibits tumor angiogenesis. In one study, uh, women got a biopsy of their breasts that showed atypia, put them at high risk for breast cancer. And then they simply had one teaspoon of ground flax a day for a year and had the biopsy repeated. And the precancerous cell changes reverted to completely normal in 32% of the women. And a biomarker for cell division, it's called KI67 division rate, how many cells here are one becoming two, dropped by 80% in all the women. So pretty powerful from just a teaspoon, but what if you had more than that? This is my muffin story. It is my favorite um, study to create just an easy, easy impact um, because all you have to do is down two tablespoons of ground flax. So they took 32 breast cancer patients. They'd all had a breast biopsy and on that biopsy, they measured three things. The KI67, the division rate I just explained, apoptosis, which is the boop, cells exploding because um, it's called cell program cell death, basically. The, they're senescent cancer cells and it's their time to go and they recognize it and just commit suicide. The third one is CRB2 expression. This is a aggressive marker. So everybody gets a muffin and that's the funny part because these are just like your routine women. There's nothing, you know, they're gonna be over, overweight and diabetic and whatever they are, it's just like slice of pie America and everybody gets junk food to eat every day for a week. It's just that half of them have a muffin that secretly has two tablespoons of ground flax. So the first study was a teaspoon. This is uh, six times that amount, but just daily for five weeks. And here's what happened. Five weeks later, they have their definitive surgery and relook at all those things on the cancer. The cell division rate went down 34.2%. The marker of aggressiveness went down 71%. And the apoptosis, the cancer cell suicide, went up 30.7%. That's amazing. Um, and all three of these factors improved whether the cancers were estrogen positive or the more aggressive, less curable estrogen negative. But does that really translate to survival? Indeed, it does. So here's a study from New York that reported out a 71% drop in breast cancer mortality in postmenopausal women with the highest lignin intakes. And the primary sources of lignans in this study, incidentally, were dark bread, peaches, coffee, broccoli, and winter squash, which is like a joke in content compared to flax. So two tablespoons a day. Next up, dietary fiber. I love fiber. Um, because it's fun to talk about bowel movements. And yeah. so now fiber crushes cancer's dreams because it binds to excess estrogen in your GI tract and makes you poop it out. It also improves insulin sensitivity. And I'm going to talk about what a bad actor insulin is when it comes to talking about um, weight. So I'll hang on to that, but it's good to have insulin sensitivity. And it releases a litany of antioxidants into your system because the microbiome, the good bacteria in your gut, love this fiber. 
eat it down and then release all these vitamins and anti-cancer compounds like lignans that we just discussed and isoflavones and phytate. So high fiber, it turns out, even quells the more aggressive triple negative, estrogen negative cancers. Um, and particularly if you consume more than 30 grams a day, some studies show you could decrease breast cancer by as much as 40%. But more is even better. And Chuck, I know you know this answer. Guess how many Americans eat the wimpy recommendation of 30 grams a day? Don't ask me for a specific percentage, but I mean, it's minuscule. It is minuscule. It's only 3%. Yeah. And that's ridiculous because people literally obsess over protein and they don't give a second thought to fiber and their lack of fiber is just the biggest missed opportunity in their entire diet because it has so many health benefits. But one of the benefits, it turns out, is pooping. So there was a study that... um, Okay, hold on. Let me just jump in here. Hold on. If you are listening to this podcast, you absolutely are doing yourself a disservice. You need to hop over to YouTube and watch this (laughs) because the picture that is on the screen right now is priceless. It is a dog proving that fiber works. And that's all I'm going to say about that. But that is a happy dog right there. That pug just looks like they don't have a care in the world, as you were, Dr. Funk. Thank you. All pugs, <laughs> all pugs look like they don't care. Um, so this study that I'm going to tell you about correlated precancerous changes in the breast with the frequency of bowel movements in almost 1,500 women. And what they found is that those who poop less than twice a week versus once a day were four and a half times more likely to harbor these precancerous changes in their breasts. Four and a half times. That's like 350% higher. So how come? Well, many studies show that bile acids can actually damage DNA in the breast, so much so that they actually initiate cancer changes. And your bile is coming from your liver. It dumps it into the intestine as a way of getting rid of cholesterol. But if you don't poop enough, Bile acids have a really long and slow transit time through that gut of yours. And so in the colon, the bile salts can be reabsorbed back into the body and what build up in the breast where they then cause breast cancer. Yeah, apparently. So of all the crazy things to study, researchers literally aspirated these Well, they first they had these women eat radio labeled bile salts. And then nine days later, they had already known they had breast cysts, so little fluid accumulations in their breasts, which are really easy to aspirate. You just poke it with a needle and pull it with syringe and get rid of the fluid. So they do this. And lo and behold, the radio labeled bile acids were in the breast cyst fluid. So yes, these carcinogenic bile acids get absorbed back from your slow transit time and go straight to the breast where they can apparently initiate cancerous changes. And this might explain why our constipated ladies have four and a half times the cancerous change, precancerous change of the breast cells as opposed to the super poopers. <laughs> All right, go fiber. Another great source of fiber, like eight grams for a cup in, of raspberries, for example, uh, is berries. But I love berries for a way bigger reason than the fiber, although that's a biggie. And it has to do with elagitannins and elagic acid. And these are found in all the berries, but highest in blackberries, strawberries, pomegranates. Um, And you can also find elagitannins and elagic acid in black tea, almonds, walnuts, and pecans. 
But what I want to tell you about, because these are really, it's kind of a new burgeoning area of research, and that is to understand these compounds in berries that I mentioned. They're transformed by gut bacteria into urolithins. And urolithins are this new class of anti-cancer compounds that can mediate their cancer prevention activities through all of these different modalities. They, they can stop cells from dividing, cancer cells. They can inhibit aromatase, ding, ding. That's the second time now I mentioned the fat enzyme that converts steroids into estrogen. They can induce apoptosis. You know what that is now, the cancer cell suicide. They suppress tumors. And then they promote autophagy, autosulfage eat. Your immune system can be stimulated to engulf dead, damaged, dying, deranged cells like senescent cells. Like you're just now sitting around spewing out inflammatory markers. You got to go. So it starts the autophagy process um, in the senescence. Like you're getting on your way out, let me just scoot you along there, granddaddy, and go. Uh, transcriptional regulation of oncogenes and growth factor receptors. So it changes oncogenes. There are switches that get flipped on and off, and they're either to your health or to your detriment. And so these urolithins flip the switches in a way that promote health. These same mechanisms that promote breast health improve overall health. And there's a couple of studies out of Harvard that look at berries, um, one of them showed that just one cup of blueberries a week slowed down rates of cognitive decline. So there it is, berries are helping your brain. And another Harvard study, <laughs> I don't know why, they must have like a whole berry lab there or something. <laughs> this is also from Harvard. <laughs> they they do so well with nutrition at Harvard. I mean, it's just amazing uh, how, how good they, they are with their research and, and their courses there. Side note, as you were. Yes. Um, this, this is a 20 year long study of, of, of 93,000 plus women. And they found that those that ate the most berries had the least cardiovascular disease and type two diabetes. So boom, right there with one cup of berries, you're getting a bunch of fiber, you're protecting your breast with urolithins, you're protecting your brain, your heart, and your response to insulin. Superfood. Another superfood is apples. An apple a day may keep cancer away. One study showed that those who ate an apple a day had 24% less breast cancer than those eating fewer apples. Side note, extracts from the peel stop cancer cells in the lab 10 times more effectively than from the flesh of the same apples. So eat them whole or blended, but don't juice them and don't peel them and throw away the peel. Lycopene in tomatoes is anti-inflammatory, anti-angiogenic. So it can slow cancer cell growth. It can stimulate apoptosis. It limits free radical damage. And unlike most phytochemicals, which are best consumed in the raw state, like we were talking with the broccoli, cooking tomatoes for just two minutes increases the lycopene bioavailability by 54%. 30 minutes, uh, no, sorry, 15 minutes of cooking, 300%. So why how's it doing this? Um, it just disrupts the cell membranes and it allows the lycopene to be released from the tissue matrix and right into your system faster. It's also fat soluble. So bump up absorption of lycopene by uh, consuming your roasted tomatoes that have been in there for 15 minutes with a little avocado or olives or saute up a tofu scramble and have the fat and tofu. Okay, mushrooms. Who would have guessed, but there are so many little fancy mushrooms. Um, okay, I gotta tell you about this study. This is a hot off the press too. It's October, 2021. 
And uh, they showed, it's a meta-analysis. So they basically looked at all the reputable studies of mushrooms and breast cancer, and they found 17 of them. And what they found was the high versus low mushroom consumers had a an average 35% decrease in breast cancer. But the fancy mushrooms like the shiitake, maitake, and reishi, um, they have these chemicals, particularly uh, ergothrionine, which is really anti-cancer, anti-aging. It's very protective. However, when you put them head to head against the cheapy white button mushroom, it turns out they lose. So the the one that's found in pretty much anyone's produce department almost uh, is the white button. And a single one study in Chinese women showed that a single like half of a mushroom, 10 grams, like the size of the tip of your thumb worth of a white button a day, dropped breast cancer by 64% compared to no mushroom eaters. Wow. So shrooms are my food of the year does it matter cooked versus raw do we know that uh no you get all of the nutritional power there are just a couple of studies that show that there's a toxin called a garotene that can build up um and exist on raw mushrooms and if you simply saute or steam them for one minute the garotene blows away and you're not swallowing that down but you will get the nutritional value raw or cooked there you go okay Remember how we were talking about the heat in the myrosinase, and I just alluded to that with the broccoli and the sulforaphane. Uh, same story here. So when we talk about our allium vegetables, these are the garlic, onion, leek, shallots, chives, scallions. These, uh, the magical enzyme uh, is called alienase. So it's the myrosinase um, match to the onion family, right? So that gets destroyed by cooking. So now you can if you love sauteed onions, like that's the base of like half the things I make at home. So I always at the end sprinkle in some of the raw stuff to get the alienase enzyme back in action. You can crush or chew or chop the the bulbs, but when you cook them, you want to get a little raw ones back in the mix. Um, quercetin is a flavonoid that's really high quantity in garlic and onions. And these compounds in particular show impressive anti-estrogen and anti-proliferative activity. Um, in fact, quercetin slows down growth enough uh, while being anti-angiogenic and pro-apoptosis to be considered an anti-metastatic substance. And I love this graph because it takes extracts from 34 vegetables and drips it onto Petri dishes filled with eight different types of cancer cell lines. Um, this one is the MCF7 population. So these are my breast cells that are estrogen driven. And you see way over here at the very end, the most powerful that basically just stops all the cancer cells in their tracks are these allium veggies, garlic, leek, green onion over here. And then the next most powerful are all the cruciferous veggies. So I love this graph. A French study showed an astounding 75% drop in breast cancer with just 12 weekly servings of the allium veggies. And now you can see why. Um, interesting. So the big bars are just showing cell proliferation. And these foods that are healthy in different ways aren't showing much to stop them from growing. So over here, you've got eggplant, carrots, some endive lettuce. So not doing that much. All right. Moving on, another uh, top breast superfood is seaweed. A Korean study showed that just a daily consumption of gim, like a sheet of nori, you know, that wraps sushi, drops breast cancer by over 50%. Uh, and this might be because seaweed favorably 
alters estrogen metabolism, helps you get rid of it faster. And it also modulates the gut bacteria, which we're learning more and more about. Um, and it may then help interfere with estrogen binding to estrogen receptors on cancers. In any case, just snack on sheets of nori um, instead of chips, or maybe throw some spirulina in, onto a salad or in a dressing. All right. Next up, this is more of a spice than a, than a food, turmeric. Um, but curcumin is the potent phytonutrient within turmeric. But when you put turmeric and curcumin head to head um, by dripping extracts on petri dishes, turmeric wins out. So there's something, you know, we don't always understand all the biochemical uh, synergies in a food, but whole food is always the way to go. So turmeric um, is better than curcumin, but they're all great, right? Okay. Don't forget that the piperine in black pepper makes the bioavailability of curcumin from barely detectable to almost 2000% higher. And just like um, lycopene, it's fat soluble. So you want to be consuming this with something like flax seeds that are in my smoothie or even soy milk, um, avocado. Cacao. This gets an anti-cancer thumbs up to the delight of many who have a sweet tooth because um, consuming just 1.45 ounces it has to be more than 70% cacao though. It can be like when we first turned uh, plant-based and I, and I was insistent on having these high levels of cacao, the kids were like, I don't like chocolate mom. <laughs> 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 it's not that sweet, but it, it does deliver more antioxidants um, to your system than it does cocoa fat and sugar. And um, cacao beans contain more antioxidants, particularly polyphenols and other flavanols than many other well-known superfoods like blueberries. Uh, green tea and red wine. So it, it's a, it's definitely a superfood. And most, so that antioxidant power is real, right? Like if you slice an apple and you just let it sit there, it browns. But you squeeze a little lemon juice on that apple and it doesn't brown. You put guacamole in the fridge and tomorrow the surface looks like poop and no one wants to eat the leftover guacamole. <laughs> but if you slice and place an onion on top, Pro tip, if you didn't know that one, it will not brown and it stays green. And that's the power of antioxidants um, live and in person and with your eyes. But a tablespoon of cacao, for example, it has two grams of fiber. There we are with fiber. And it also might decrease uh, stress, anxiety, depression. But we find that it has really potent antioxidant properties. All right. So what happens is, all of my kids who are like, yeah, no to the chocolate, um, we start adding things like milk, i.e. fat, and oils and sugar to cut the bitterness of the cacao. And that just makes it a high glycemic fattening unhealthy choice that actually elevates cancer risk. Check this out, an Italian study, um, where's my year? This is from 06, no, I have one coming up that's recent. So this looked at um, over 5,000 women, half and half without breast cancer and then with, and they were compared and they found that the highest versus lowest third consuming sugars, which included table sugar, honey, jam, marmalade, and chocolate, had a 19% increase in breast cancer risk. And that was thought to be due to the chronic elevation of insulin and IGF-1, which is the subject of something else. So we're going to talk about it in a bit when we talk weight. So you want to look for 70% or more cacao without milk, oil, or sugar added. So you want to read the ingredients and avoid all the marketing trap of brands like Hershey's Special Dark. So it sounds special and dark, uh, but when you look at the ingredients, the first one's sugar, then it's chocolate, and then here we go, milk, fat, 
and um, oil, sunflower oil. That's it. So basically, you got to avoid the marketing trap. Dutch cocoa, by the way, is processed with alkali, which removes most of the antioxidant content. So nothing Dutch, no Dutch cocoa. As compared to, I've got this one here of Theo brand, um, Hue, H-U, that's another really good one. So here's the other ingredients, cocoa beans, sugar, you're gonna have the sugar, so it's palatable, uh, cocoa butter and ground vanilla bean, like super simple and quite delicious. Here's my uh, newer study, December, 2021, types of carbohydrate intake and breast cancer survival. This is a cool study. You were asking me about this in the live, Chuck, about um, has there been a study? And there have been several, but this is the most recent. They looked at total sugar intake, um, added sugars, sucrose, fructose, and then vegetables and carbohydrates like potatoes and um, oh, refined grains and whole grains. So it looked at the whole gamut of foods because people worry about eating, consuming whole fruit, but it really came down to what they found was a 16% increase in breast cancer for those who had the highest total sugar intake, a 23% increase in all-cause mortality for the highest uh, total sugar intake. But interestingly, what they found was that, oh, but huh, I, sorry, I didn't tell you. These are all breast cancer patients. So we were trying to see who recurred and who died based on the sugar content. So once you have breast cancer, I get asked this a lot. Should I go like balls to the wall, anti-sugar? And the answer is no, just choose your sugar. So we don't want table sugar, refined sugars, um, and we don't want juice. The breast cancer patients who ate natural sugars occurring in foods and not added as its own ingredient, uh, with, that intake was not associated at all with recurrence or mortality risk. Carbohydrates from vegetables was actually associated with lower risk of all-cause mortality. Um, and carbohydrates from refined grains, which I don't want you eating anyway, right? Enriched, enriched wheat flour. So when you're looking at your pastas, it should be whole grain spaghetti or whole oats, whole barley, whole rye. We don't want refined grains ever anyway, but that also was suggestive of an increased recurrence. So hold that thought. I'm going to do a deeper dive into potatoes and breast cancer. But there you have it. Don't yeah. worry about your fruit or your veggies. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, because we did have that show during the uh, the, the show, the, that question during the live Q&A, somebody wondering about that, you know, the, the difference between the two. And I mean, they were like, well, I'm worried I can't ever eat fruit again, you know, and they were like really disappointed because you were talking about apples earlier. It turns out this woman really loved her some honey crisp apples and she was just, I can't live without them. And now we know that you don't have to live without them. As a matter of fact, you should eat them and eat them in abundance. Just make sure that you're eating the peel at the same time. Exactly. One day uh, we went to Arizona, the kids and Andy and I for my niece's wedding and uh, they, I went to the store. I don't know what possessed me. I was like, I'm going to do an apple tasting contest. And I got nine different, because they had so many apples in this store in Arizona. So um, Sedona, we were in Sedona. And uh, so I bought all these different types of apples. And then I put the name of it under the plate and I cut them all up. And then I had everybody like do their like, like wine tasting, but apples. <laughs> and to rate, like, no, would you like number one, two? They just had numbers. And then I did the big reveal. And the winner was Honeycrisp. Yep. There's something magical about that apple. Yes. Just magical. Pink ladies were not far behind. 
All right, next up, whole grains. And we were just talking about not needing refined grains, but I want you to eat whole grains. So again, whole needs to be there, that word, whole grain bread, whole grain pasta, but brown, wild, black, red, rice, whole oats, quinoa, frica, farro, popcorn, whole rye, barley, buckwheat, couscous, bulgur, amaranth, sorghum. I mean, there's like a whole world of grains that I was introduced to when we turned plant-based that I'd heard of, but I was like, do people eat that? And then lo and behold, when your eyes are open, you're like, oh, it's in Ralph's. Like it's in the basic grocery store. I just never looked for it before. <laughs> it's not obscure. You don't have to order it online. Um, but all these whole grains, all these fancy chemicals that I've listed there, reduce breast cancer, slow cancer growth, and lower heart disease. So there we are getting some win-wins going. Next superfood is the citrus family, grapefruit, orange, tangerine, clementines, tangelos, lemons, limes. They also reduce breast cancer by slowing cancer growth, stimulating the apoptosis, limiting free radical damage. Um, you know, when you think vitamin C, like you think orange juice or citrus fruits like oranges and grapefruits, um, they actually bestow a really modest 10% reduction in breast cancer. But when you add other vitamin C sources and therefore multiple phytonutrients like carrots, sweet potatoes, and greens, you get up to a 31% drop in breast cancer. So again, as a plant-based, whole food plant-based eater, like if every meal you're having, you don't have to know these combinations. Just know that when you're mixing, you're potentiating all the anti-cancer potential. Um, that these foods have because they work synergistically and we don't really have to understand how or why just, you know, make a burrito and eat it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the next 16th anti cancer superfood is like, no one will even know what that is. That is a picture of the Indian gooseberry. Uh, and that we also talked about as having the highest antioxidant content of all foods tested out of a series of 3,100 foods, like everything from Coca-Cola to coconuts. But the amla is the powdered form of that. And so that is an easy way to get your Indian gooseberry uh, every day into like a smoothie or something. But it has literally 124 times the antioxidant content of a blueberry. The next superfood is the aloe plant. So aloe tonic is something that we've found to be highly um, effective because it's 100% of the plant. Usually the outside of the aloe leaf, which as you know, just like the skin of grapes, the skin of the apples, the skin of the leaf has the most powerful nutrients, but it also has this like gross thing called aloe in that makes you have diarrhea. <laughs> so, <laughs> so most um, aloe drinks don't have the outer leaf, but this we found, scoured the earth and found a company that can actually cold process a whole aloe plant. And we created this aloe tonic, which we added um, 12 botanicals to or maybe 16. I don't know, botanicals um, that uh, have been shown. They're basically, um, What's the, what am I adaptogens in your body? So they uh, they help you adapt to stress. So this is a really powerful drink. So the aloe has been shown to degrade estrogen receptors off of breast cancers, um, which is a pretty cool thing. So aloe is another superfood. The final superfood is green tea. So we talked about EGCG in the past, how it can 
also get rid of can- breast cancer stem cells when ingested. So I'm a big fan of matcha green tea. It has the highest EGCG content. I'm a big fan of our ancient matcha just because I uh, have control over the, the process of how it's made. It's 100% organic and has been tested against um, your basic off-the-shelf green tea and has 137 times the amount of antioxidants of regular green tea. Some of you may worry about caffeine in green tea and it, the high doses of it can make you anxious. Um, there is a group, a company I love, Seime is their name, S-E-I-M-E-E. They make a really beautiful decaffeinated matcha green tea that they've shown in studies does not decrease the amount of EGCG in their decaf. So the other decaf, often you get a big drop in what you're drinking it for, which is the EGCG. So if you hate caffeine, try that one. And if you go to pinklotus.com slash smoothie or just say Dr. Funk Smoothie in Google, you will have this recipe show up, which has 13 of these top 18 anti-cancer foods in the smoothie. If you add, these aren't in the recipe, but if you add a little like half a lemon and by the way, throw the skin in there. If you're doing a smoothie, it's going to, you're just going to get all those extra phytochemicals, little chocolate, apple grapes. So what would be disgusting in the smoothie are tomatoes, mushrooms, garlic, seaweed, and whole grains. I'm shocked you couldn't get garlic to work in that smoothie. Just shocked. (laughs) I I tried. (laughs) Um, But this, these five, the last five make an amazing, just its own thing. Like I can already see uh, making a whole grain pasta, right? So we've got our whole grains and you just mix up some tomatoes and some sauce with mushrooms and garlic. And then you sprinkle a little, little, uh, see the seaweed flakes with the sesame seeds from Trader Joe's. Yeah. Oh, good call. Yes. Or the, I can see this whole thing becoming a lovely, uh, whole grain slice of bread with an avocado toast. Again, a little bit of garlic, mushrooms, tomatoes, and sprinkling our little, yep, yep. I'm thinking. I like the way your culinary mind works. All of these anti-cancer things on two two little easy meals. So go in Elements, we've got an amazing um, array of products, many of which have randomized controlled trials behind them, and that can help you jumpstart on some of the more obscure items on that list. The rest of it you could just find in your grocery store. Here's my summary slide. So if you're listening to this, I'll just give you a verbal that this is my eat to beat breast cancer plate. It comes from my book. And I want 70% of the plate to be vegetables and fruits and about 15% to be whole grains and 15% to be healthy proteins. Moving on to another boulder. So we just got through the whole food plant-based eating. Our next boulder is alcohol. Uh Uh-oh. So the science is in and the science is clear that the less you drink, the less cancer you're going to have. Why? Why? In the <laughs> Because alcohol is a carcinogen. It increases estrogen levels. We've seen that as a bad actor, right? Feeds 80% of breast cancers, but it forms acetaldehyde. Even if you just like swished and spit it out, you already will have made acetaldehyde and swallow it down. Um, it also impairs immune function and you need those immune cells functional to seek out and destroy cancer cells. It also inactivates the conversion of folic acid from vitamins or folate from your leafy greens into methylfolate, which is the active form that helps with DNA repair. So we've got a number of mechanisms by which alcohol is a downer. So I hate to be a buzzkill, but wait, I hear some of you out there. You're like, wait, wait, doesn't a drink a day keep heart attacks away? And didn't you say we're seven times more likely to die of heart disease than breast disease? And 
Um, yes and yes, sort of. So moderate drinking might decrease mortality from heart disease. We've all seen these headlines that are associated with drinking and heart health. But Houston, we have a problem. It's called a J-curve. So there are hundreds of studies that were published in the 1990s and early 2000s that showed the classic J-shaped curve when it comes to drinking and death from heart disease, cancer, and any cause at all. So the J-shape means that relative to a non-drinker, so here we are with our zero risk person. So anything above this line increases risk and everything below the design line decreases. So here's your non-drinker. Mortality up and down, here's the number of drinks. So if I just have like one or two drinks a day, I have less mortality than the non-drinker. But then when you go like drinking all night, drink every hour, boom, and you're past three drinks, you're gonna have increased mortality. So here's your J curve. And um, so on the, it's okay, so it's hard to follow the money. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to follow the money when who comes to who funded what study because there's loopholes in needing to report conflicts of interest but regardless of why they did it or how they did it could it be could it be that maybe all or many of these so-called non-drinkers actually used to be super heavy drinkers and they're super sick now and they can't even drink if they wanted to and they're so when they check the box they're like yeah i'm a non-drinker well today right like that's like when I you know, go over history and physical stuff or before breast surgery and I'm like, um, do you have high blood pressure? And they're like, no. And then I look and they're on like four blood pressure medications. I'm like, well, you don't have high blood pressure today. <laughs> I'm almost mad. Um, okay, so could it be that, right? Could it be that they used to drink and don't now? So there are former drinkers in the non-drinking group. And therefore, if I just drink one or two drinks a day and I'm like super healthy and fit, otherwise I look so much better than this group filled with people with cirrhosis and some non-drinkers for life. So anyway, what happens then if you include all the abstainers, um, if you include them in that group, you just have this J curve. And all of a sudden the abstainers group, you know, has worse health and it makes the drinkers look super fit. But a study came out in 2017 that went back in time, back to the future and reclassified all of those misclassified non-drinkers. The revamped meta-analysis included 87 studies that had all replicated that classic J-curve, and it represented nearly 4 million people and 370,000 deaths, okay, when you pull it all together. And they found that 65 of the 87 studies included former drinkers in the abstainer group. Mm. And another nine studies included current occasional drinkers in the abstainer group. For a total of 74 out of 87 studies, meaning that 85% of the abstainers were not, in fact, never drinkers. And when they corrected the bias in that reference, the J-curve vanished and was replaced by a linear curve. Just flat out, the more you drink, the higher your risk. Here are your drinks per day, and up, up, up goes the risk. Now, they did an analysis also adding back the occasional drinkers into the reference group. So if you're like, wow, that stinks, but what if I only have, you know, I'm like a CEO, I'm a Christmas Easter only kind of drinker. Um, <laughs> but they actually defined uh, infrequent drinking as less, uh, as one or fewer a month. 
Okay, so if you have like 12 drinks a year, there's no change and there's no protection either. So it's just, you can have that one drink a month and have zero difference. All right, so I know I'm being Dr. Buzzkill right now, but somebody out there is thinking, wait a minute, so 15% of the studies were legit, right? (laughs) (laughs) The senior group was real. So uh, did they find a protective effect? You know, okay, maybe, but I'm not saying with my doctor hat on my head that you should drink. Um, More studies overall definitely associate bad over good, implicating alcohol for way more than breast cancer or cancer. It causes high blood pressure, obesity, stroke, um, and then lots of cancer, especially mouth, throat, esophagus, colon, liver. It can cause cirrhosis, depression, suicide, accidents, to name a few negatives. So if you don't drink, don't start. But now I'm going to put on like more of a cool girlfriend hat and um, ask along with you, is there room for a little moderation here? And to answer that, let's talk about what a drink is. The U.S. defines drinks as 14 grams of alcohol. That's a 12-ounce can of beer equals 5 ounces of wine equals 1.5 ounces of hard liquor. And according to the latest research from the National Institutes of Health and IARC, a drink a day increases breast cancer risk by 7% for premenopausal women. And that same drink a day, 13% increase in postmenopausal women. So you can just do your math. If you have two drinks a day, you've got a 14% increase in breast cancer over a non-drinker for premenopause and 26% increase in postmenopausal women. However, there might be a couple of redemptive qualities and one and only one alcoholic choice, and that is red wine. So red wine does seem to have some fairly impressive qualities about it. And many studies show a decrease in all cancer relative to teetotalers, but J-curve problem, right? So what do we know about red wine? This 2020 paper details how all of these things like cancer cell differentiation, meaning having it um, uh, change how it grows and divides, and that helps evade treatment detection, it can this is the, oh, I should start with the center. So <laughs> the resveratrol, the antioxidants in red wine and the other compounds like the flavonoids and the phenols can interfere with cancer cell differentiation. They can cause growth inhibition. So it slows down growth. It can inhibit metastases, can induce that apoptosis suicide and can modulate the estrogen signaling so that when estrogen hits the receptor, no signal is sent to the cell to divide. So these are naturally occurring compounds and there are aromatase inhibitors. There it is again, the fat cell enzyme inhibitor that exists in red wine, but not white wine, but it's also in grapes. It's in the skin of red grapes, highest quantity in those red grapes with the seeds in them, which are annoying to eat. Uh, but it's in grape juice, but you know, I'm not a fan of juice and grape seed extract. So I'm just saying to my non-drinkers, don't start drinking red wine because I said it had all these resveratrol probably. Get your resveratrol from your blueberries and your red grapes. Another thing, if you choose to drink, so the American Cancer Society says, if you choose to drink, the guidelines are no more than one drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men. I think that sounds really generous and kind of too good to be true and might be influenced by powers I cannot see or point to. <laughs> um, 
However, again, if you're drinking, if you choose to, one smarter choice is going to be red wine versus the others. And another smart thing, if you choose to drink, might be to have a strategic supplement when you drink. And here's what it is and why. So methylfolate. The enzyme MTHFR, which if you look at that, just looks like a bad word, but it stands for methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase. <laughs> it does too. Uh, it absolutely does. It does. There's no way around it. Um, but that enzyme, your little face, that enzyme takes folate from food and folic acid from your vitamins and, and turns it into the active form L5-methylfolate. This is your DNA babysitter. So as it divides, methylfolate's like, hmm, are you doing that in a pure, true form or did you mutate? And it Loops in and either fixes it or throws it out if the cell mutated. Um, so that's the job of methylfolate. Turns out 30 to 50% of people genetically have an MTHFR polymorphism that causes it to work at reduced efficiency. So it's not a full-on mutation where it doesn't work, but you um, just don't do the conversion completely with all the folate that you're consuming. So one kind of proof of that concept comes from the nurse's health study where they pulled out, there's a big study of lots of nurses followed, but now they're just looking at the drinkers. So they pulled out all the nurses who reported drinking one or more alcoholic drinks a day. And then they gauged how much folate or folic acid they were consuming via food and vitamins. And it turns out those who consumed 600 micrograms or more a day of folate had 89% less breast cancer than those having less than that. So these are all drinkers. Just by having more folate, you had a phenomenal drop in breast cancer. So that's how important L5-methylfolate is to this DNA babysitting uh, project. And one way to uh, supplement is to just do straight methylfolate in Elements, our store, we have a supplement that uh, my nutraceutical guru designed with me called um, Cosmo Companion. So it not only has the Bioact most bioactive form of methylfolate, but botanicals that protect and um, support your liver as it detoxes and it enhances glucose metabolism. So just again, when you choose to drink, the key is one glass of red wine and then pop a little methylfolate. Boulder number three. All right, who's chubby? 72.2% of American adults are overweight and or or obese, they're not and or, they're either overweight or obese, um, as defined by body mass index. So if you're not sure if you're too chubby, like you could be, but you don't know, just get a BMI calculator. We've got a handy dandy one at pinklotus.com slash BMI, body mass index. You just put in your height and weight and it'll spit out your BMI. You want it to be between 18.5 and 24.9, but is there like a super healthy BMI, and turns out there is, if you really want to, you know, put the best over better, the best ideal body weight will have your BMI uh, between 21 and 22. All right. If you are, however, overweight or obese, what does that mean? Well, I've talked a few times today alone about how 80% of breast cancers are fueled by estrogen. We talked about the aromatase enzyme in fat. So high estrogen levels after menopause. So now your ovaries shut off. Your only forms of estrogen are going to be one of three places. You're either going to uh, uh, <laughs> hormone replacement therapy. You're going to put it on yourself as patches. You're going to swallow it down as pills. You're going to put it uh, under your skin as a every three months um, 
shot thing. Okay, so you're either going to purposely give yourself estrogens or you're going to probably innocently, unknowingly consume them by eating animals that are animals. So they have estrogen. Dairy, of course, is made in a high estrogenic state. When did you make milk, mom? Right after pregnancy, when you were hot in a high estrogen state, so are dairy cows, except they're constantly in that state. They're inseminated three months after giving birth to a calf. And so they're always pregnant or having just had a baby. And so the baby <laughs> calf. So they are always in high estrogen. And then you take that milk and you 10 pounds of milk makes one pound of cheese and you highly concentrate all of that saturated fat and cholesterol and the salt, but also the estrogen. So you're eating estrogen some of you who eat animal proteins. And then the third place is fat, your own fat. It has that aromatase enzyme. So after your ovaries quit, let's just say you're plant-based and you're not taking HRT, your only source of estrogen then is going to be your fat cells. So this now begs the question, do obese women have increased estrogen levels because of the fat that then increase their breast cancer risk? So this study looked at comparing weight gain in life to the incidence of breast cancer, but no one was on hormone replacement therapy. So, okay, separately, obesity and cancer are already totally complex, um, being both incompletely understood in combinations that are incompletely understood of genetics, environment, lifestyle. So hence, when we try to integrate obesity and cancer, it's immensely complicated. So I'm going to try to simplify it. But Despite all the complexity I just said, obesity is a standalone risk factor for developing um, triple negative breast cancer. No estrogen, no progesterone, no HER2 receptors on this cancer. It's the most aggressive, least curable subtype of breast cancer that we have to deal with, and obesity increases its risk. So there's more than the fat factor going on, but when you look at the estrogen stimulation aspect, there's a clear association between gaining weight having more fat, making more estrogen, and getting more breast cancer. If in high school you think of how much you weighed, and now you think of your weight, okay, and get that difference. Chuck is the, you know, weight loss champion, so that's dramatic. <laughs> I went backwards. Negative. You went backwards. Yeah. Most people don't, but they can be plus or minus 8 pounds, and so you're my null group. If you've gained 8 to 13.9 pounds since high school, your breast cancer rate goes up 25%. If you gain between 14 and 29 pounds, your cancer rate goes up 60%. And if you gain more than 29 pounds after high school, you almost double your risk of breast cancer, bringing it up 90%. So yes, the fat increases estrogen and that estrogen causes breast cancer to occur at a higher rate. But back to what I was saying, what about the obese women also having this higher risk of estrogen negative? So there's something more than the flying around estrogens, the endogenous estrogens, and so it's not the only mechanism by which being overweight increases breast cancer risk. Um, by all means, I want to tell you not to gain weight. This is a hot off the press study. Let me like, I can't read. Oh, 2021. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> on your eyes, people. Sorry. Um, but it, yeah, this is a December 2021 study. So it came out after we last talked. I was trying to pepper in new stuff um, today. So don't gain weight. In total, they had over 150,000 women, median age of 51 years, followed up for 14 years, during which time... 6,532 breast cancers developed in women who were lean when they were 20 years old 
and then gained on average 22 pounds, they found a 42% increase in postmenopausal breast cancer risk. So you wanna maintain a healthy weight. If you pull all the studies, I can really scare the fat right off of you. So that obese women have 50 to 250% more breast cancer occurrence, more breast cancer recurrence, and more breast cancer related death than non-obese women. And uh, just being obese correlates to having a larger tumor and more positive nodes, no matter what the subtype of breast cancer, estrogen positive, negative, HER2 positive, um, triple negative, all of it, bigger cancers, more positive nodes, just because of the obesity connection. And I'm gonna try to connect a few of those dots right now. So besides the estrogen connection we just made via the aromatase, there are three other probable major contributors. And these are really fairly new, right? 2020, 2020, 2022, 2019. These are very recent studies trying to understand this complex connection between obesity and breast cancer. Um, so one of the additional mechanisms is leptin and leptin receptor expression. Leptin is produced and secreted into the circulation mainly by adipose fat. And once leptin binds to its receptor, it crosstalks with multiple oncogenes, which then ignite numerous signaling pathways that release pro-inflammatory cytokines and growth factors. And blah, 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 the end game is that this leptin connection initiates breast cancer cells. Then it makes them progress in number and proliferate. And then it gives them the power to metastasize. All right, so speaking of inflammation, the third factor is inflammation, adipose chronic inflammation. These, there are these activated cells that are called macrophages and they live inside the fat tissues of obese people and they produce also all those pro-inflammatory mediators that have a bunch of numbers and letters like TNF-alpha um, and interleukin-1 and 6. Um, there are are also these the, the fact that the chronic inflammation promotes cancer growth, metastatic spread, angiogenesis, right? But it also modifies the immune response and it seems to interfere with the hormonal or chemotherapy drugs that we're giving treatments. And that's why obese women have a worse prognosis. Stage for stage, cancer subtype for cancer subtype, it's because the fat inhibits the ability through all this chronic inflammation of our chemo drugs to work, of our tamoxifen to work, of our letrozole to work. Um, final factor that they're really getting into studying is insulin and IGF-1 signaling. So body mass index correlates directly with circulating in insulin. The bigger you are, the higher your insulin level. Insulin does a number of bad things. First of all, it activates aromatase, like let's turn it on to high gear so we make even more estrogen. And insulin all by itself can directly stimulate the growth and invasion of breast cancer cells. It also decreases IGF-1 binding protein, which retires IGF-1. So that makes your IGF-1 stick around longer to do all of its growth promoting damage that we talked about in the last podcast. So 
the other thing I, insulin does is it stops apoptosis. It's like, hey, cancer cell, hang out. Where are you going so fast? Like, just live longer, why don't you? And it also elevates um, something called VEGF, which causes angiogenesis to happen. So insulin is really bad. It's extremely inflammatory. It elevates estrogen. It stimulates breast cancer cells. It stimulates growth IGF-1 and then makes cancer hang out longer and brings it more blood flow and nutrients. Here is, we need some good news. (laughs) Yeah, but cheer us up. Cheer us up. I'm going to cheer you up, weight loss champion. If you lose the weight, you lose the risk. So I want you to be a loser. (laughs) This is a prospective study that followed 33,000 plus women over 15 years. In that time, about 2,000 breast cancers developed. And what they found is that the highest rates were in those with a steady increase in weight over time. However, there were lower rates in anyone who just lost weight, but the sooner the better. So if you lost weight in your premenopausal years, there was 64% less breast cancer. If you lost it after menopause, 52% less breast cancer. And if you didn't lose, but good for you, you didn't gain weight, there was 34% less breast cancer. So again, that's where I should have put that other slide about the 2022 study about gaining weight if you were lean at age 20 and gained around 22 pounds throughout life you had a 42 percent increase in breast cancer not to scare you but again to incentivize you gaining more than five percent of your initial weight during or after breast cancer treatment irrespective of your baseline body mass index increases the risk of recurrence and reduces survival fivefold. So you have a 400% increased chance of dying from your breast cancer just by gaining that weight. So please don't gain weight, my breast cancer thrivers. And one way that might help you lose and then maintain that weight loss is exercise. It's our fourth boulder. A boulder, of course, would be being sedentary and lifting it off would be doing some exercise. So (laughs) how does exercise help? Well, based on the evidence, exercise reduces breast cancer risk by decreasing estrogen levels, cancer fuel. It also helps you lose weight via enhanced fat metabolism. It decreases inflammatory markers. So all those crazy words I was just saying about the fat and obesity, and it strengthens your immune system so that those immune cells can more effectively and efficiently identify and destroy cancer cells. Okay, but what's the bare minimum amount of exercise I have to do, doc, to see all the benefits? I hear you. Surprisingly, not much, but more is better. So here's a long long study that followed uh, 17,000 women and found that those who briskly walked for a mere 11 minutes a day had 18% less breast cancer. However, if you put a little pep in your step, women who exercise for three to four hours a week get moderate to vigorous exercise levels did show a 30 to 40% lower incidence of breast cancer over sedentary women. And if you really work out hard, more is better, more than four hours, 57% lower incidence of breast cancer versus sedentary women. Here's some good news though. The exercise can be cumulative. I just want you to move more. So if you're a real stranger to like super sweaty stuff, if you're not going to go kick it on a tennis court or get on a Stairmaster or run a 10K, you can just bust a move and move more. So here are some ideas for you. Take a walk at lunchtime. 
hike a nearby trail on weekends and explore your city. Oh, join an LA chapter or an LA chapter, a local chapter. You don't have to go to LA to take a hike with me, but you could. Um, here's some fun ones. Turn TV time into training time. So every commercial break, I want you to do some push-ups, jumping jacks, burpees, okay, get moving. Try free workouts on YouTube. A lot of people are like, I don't have a gym. I can't afford a trainer. I don't really know what I'm doing. Believe me, it will not take long to search YouTube and find any and every kind of workout that fits your space, your pace, your equipment, your time limits. Just have a look around and be like newbie to exercise and see what kinds of people are out there just dying to show you how to move more. Put on some music and dance with the kids or grandkids. Put a little gusto into household chores to start grooving with the vacuum. Uh, add stealthy steps. Park farther away from the grocery store or take bathroom breaks on a different floor, right? So if you work up, don't take the elevator. I mean, the whole point is take stairs from your floor to a different floor's bathroom and then stairs back again. Deskercise. So as long as you're sitting there, you may as well be doing some seated calf raises by flexing your legs or if you're you know checking your email hey if you got to answer the phone and you're focused on that call stand up and start walking around and my two personal favorites which i do practice what i preach this is a photo of my office the day i left to come here to new york i bike to and from work that's seven miles each way and the ride home is straight up a steep mountain like 1200 feet of elevation at one point it's like 22 percent grade and i really think i'm gonna flip over backwards Feel the burn. My oh, goodness, yeah. those thighs must be on fire. They are. Every every day I ride my bike to and from work. But this is, um, the orchid is not usually in the window. So anyone who's telling me that sunlight um, can, it had just been delivered. It was my birthday. And um, I do want to make you jealous. That is the ocean out there. Aww. However, what is missing from this typical office picture? It's like one of those games, like who, who changed the picture? Remember, we got to find five ways the pirate ship looks different. Mm, is there a treadmill in there ordinarily i wish there would be mm, i don't know i think this may be the first time honestly dr funk i've i've seen a picture of your office so it is and this is a new office okay so what i have never had in my office is a chair i stand this is a standing desk there's a little lever here that goes but i never move it because i'm always standing i even stand when i eat i never sit even at home the only place i sit to eat is in a restaurant because it would be weird and embarrassing to stand <laughs> for my kids i'd probably do it yeah so for real i mean i practice this because it matters it's just the little things i mean it's so easy for me to why would i sit when i can stand in conclusion i wanted to share with you some really awesome i think they're awesome things that we offer at Pink Lotus completely free. And one of those is the community power up where you can exploit, explore this uh, free community online. We've got like little chat rooms where people are live online, like kind of like, you know, Facebook where you have your own page and you can post stuff and talk about your cancer journey. We have a survivor wall where you just post your picture. That's really fun to see. There's a bunch of educational platforms. I've got blogs in there, um, fundraising for you. You can post a fundraiser. It's cheaper than GoFundMe. And if you need like, help because you're uninsured or underinsured and going through a breast cancer diagnosis. We'd love to see your um, fundraiser get posted. But to highlight just a couple of my super faves, 
One of them is called Breast Buddies, and it was born out of this study, the LACE study that followed over 2,200 early stage breast cancer patients and found that over 10 years follow-up, those who reported out low levels of psychosocial support had 58% more breast cancer death than those who reported out high levels. So that's tragic, right? But it's also beautiful to find out that that psychosocial connection, that unburdening of stress, just to feel loved, supported, encouraged, and related to can make such a crazy impact as to stop yourself from dying. Makes me want to just shout out to everyone, get a breast buddy, join a local chapter because you don't need a BFF. You don't, maybe you don't like your family uh, and they're not supportive. We can be your family. So we've got Breast Buddies at Power Up for breast cancer patients. I've got a whole nother thing for all people. These are just cancer patients. They're matched age for age, stage for stage, treatment for treatment, somebody newly diagnosed with somebody who's been there, done that, who's passed for treatment. And you just put in your deets, like 65 years old, stage one, lumpectomy, no radiation, and boop, out will pop all of these women who are plus or minus five years or age who did the exact same treatment choices. And then you can find some real common ground with those people and connect with them. The other powerful group is our local chapters. I just launched them this year with Andy, my husband. There are 25 different major cities throughout the country that have a local chapter. If there's not one near enough to you and you wanna lead one up, just let us know. Just connect with us and we will create one online for you. And these are people, who are just cancer kickers. Um, they want to walk the talk and they don't feel like doing it alone all the time. So you can bring, I bring my kids and hubbies, like it's welcome to all people because we just do cool things. Bike rides, hikes, runs, walks. We're going on a camping trip soon. I have a five day miserable fast coming up. So I want to fast in misery with a bunch of people online at night. <laughs> we do volunteering, cooking. It's just really fun. So sign up for a local chapter and also, my last thing to share with you is I have new this year, I do my cancer kicking uh, kitchen has, so I've got a kitchen, cancer kicking kitchen is online, it has recipes and a bunch of stuff, so go check it out, but an uh, off, uh, offspring from that, is that what I mean to say, is my cook live with Chrissy and Dr. Chrissy. Um, spring, what do I mean? My offshoot, offshoot, offshoot. offshoot. Yeah, not offspring. That's completely different. That's different. Those are kids. Um, yeah. But anyway, from my kitchen sprung out my cook live with Chrissy, who's a holistic nutritionist and a dear friend of mine, and Dr. Christy. They're really fun cook-alongs. We do them live uh, once a month on Zoom, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, but then we post them so you can just watch them. And we have got fun uh, tips and tricks for cooking, but my favorite part is that I deep dive into the science of a few ingredients that I'll spotlight on any given one. If you love the things I'm saying, you want to learn more, and you don't want to listen to my rapid fire speech, I did write a book, Breast the Owner's Manual. So I encourage you to get it and read it. I encourage you to check out our online store called Pink Lotus Elements, where we have a number of intelligently formulated, um, safe from a breast cancer perspective products that are really meant to make the journey easier before, during, and after a breast cancer diagnosis. And finally, in case you somehow missed it, Let's be breastcancer.org. Sign up today, buy your cool t-shirt, eat plants, crush cancer. Let's do it together.
I love it. I love the shirts. I love the presentation. I love everything that you've shared throughout this month, not just here on the show, but with all of the events that you've been doing uh, for Let's Beat Breast Cancer with the Physicians Committee all month long. Uh, you definitely walk the walk. You talk the talk. You back it all up. And you got a whole lot of science right behind you, too, to back it up. So um, it's always such a joy to have you here. And my biggest regret is the fact that really we only get a chance to talk to you one month out of the year. What I would love to do is kind of do what we'll call like a mid-season checkup, you know, have you back on in the spring. Maybe there's some new research to talk about that just can't wait until October. So let's talk about it. You know, you're, you're just fun. You're just quarterly reviews. How about that? Quarterly. You got it. A quarterly review. Okay. I like where your head's at. Sweet. Let's do it. All right. Dr. Christy Funk, thank you so much. Uh, We've got a link to everything right now for you in the show description or in the episode notes. So go pick up your t-shirt. Go get a breast buddy. Get the pink lotus elements. I mean, just do it. Just do it all. Bring some positivity into the world and a whole lot of health with it as well. And uh, thank you for being you, Dr. Funk. I will see you next quarter. You can watch the entire interview that has Dr. Funk's full presentation on our YouTube channel or Facebook page so you can see all of her data in action. Really helps you visualize all of these tools we've been talking about, all of this information that could very well save your life. Links to both right now are in the episode notes. So are you ready? Are you ready now to load up your shopping cart with these cancer-fighting foods we've been talking about? Maybe get your omla berry on? Take a stab at making Dr. Funk's cancer-kicking smoothie, which, by the way, is so good. I mean, the flavor alone makes this thing amazing, but the health benefits that come with it make it fantastic. And also, by the way, there is a link for you to take the Let's Beat Breast Cancer Pledge, register for our giveaway, get your Let's Beat Breast Cancer t-shirt, and sign up for Dr. Funk's Breast Buddies program. All of those links are also in the episode notes. And don't forget, set a reminder, mark your calendars, and join us for the Let's Beat Breast Cancer drum rally in front of the White House on October 27th at 1 p.m. Really do hope to see you there. I'm going to be there and would love for you to join us in this fight. Remember, 42,000 women and 500 men will die of breast cancer in the United States this year alone. And we have learned over and over and over this month that so many of those lives can be saved. We keep searching for a cure, but let's never, never lose sight of the fact that we have the power of prevention on our side too. And that power has been there all along. And for today and this year, That's going to wrap up our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series. I want to say thank you once again to everyone who made these episodes possible. Our thrivers, Deandra Fields, Allison Tierney, and Karen Crisp, along with, of course, Dr. Daryl Crisp. And, of course, our fantastic breast cancer teacher, 
and chief inspirer, Dr. Christy Funk, for all of her hard work and helping to raise our health IQs. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based and let's beat breast cancer. Breast cancer.